You may be seated. Let's open our scripture and we're going to read in Matthew chapter 3. And um, one of the things I'll say right early uh, in this is that um, I, I read through the Bible every couple of years. I, I tried to do it. I did it one time in one year, and I just felt like it was way too fast. There's too much to do, but I just try to read through. And when I come to the Gospel of Matthew in my read through, I think it is one of the mo- it, it, I think it is the most convicting of the four Gospels, and one of the most convicting of all the books in the Bible. I will sometimes read the Book of Matthew, and I will get done reading, and I will think, my word. I sure hope I'm a Christian, (laughs) you know. I mean, it is a very convicting gospel. We're going to read a couple of tough passages today, uh, and um, and then I want to. I just want to unpackage those a little bit, and uh, we're going to kind of go all over the place as usual. But uh, let's start with Matthew chapter three, verses one through thirteen. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare for the way of the Lord, make straight your paths for him. So just to pause real quick, remember we talked about a month ago, uh, uh, myself, Danae, and Christian talked about Isaiah and uh, really just kind of taking the Old Testament, slinging it forward and preparing us for the coming Messiah. So here we are, we're waiting on the Messiah to come. John the Baptist is preaching, and uh, Matthew uses the proof text of Isaiah, a voice of one calling, to justify John the Baptist. Now we get a description of John. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. Mm-mm-mm. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Listen to this next part. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came. So you have this remarkable setup in Matthew. Uh, Mark has a similar setup. And here is John the Baptist, and he is coming. And look at the description of John the Baptist. First of all, we know he's a man that lives in the wilderness. Second of all, He's, uh, he has clothes made of camel's hair, and he eats locusts and wild honey. Now, why would Matthew mention a character that looks like he's from Sandy? <laughs> Just kidding. I'm from, I lived in Sandy. We've got the mountain men, you know. They drive big trucks. Well, 
But here you've got John the Baptist, he's being described in, and he's wearing kind of probably poor man's clothes, camel's hair. He's probably got the big bushy beard. But he's obviously got a message that people from all over Judea want to come and hear. His message is simple. He's preparing the people of Israel for the coming Messiah. They know the Messiah is coming, okay? And he's preparing them. And his message is so good, or at least so intriguing, that even the religious leaders come. And it's interesting because there's a juxtaposition between John the Baptist and what he looks like and how he comes off, what he's wearing, what he eats, compared to what they wear, what, you know, what they look like, their, ex- their external behaviors. That's what Matthew's trying to do here. You know, I used to joke around with friends, if I ever want to take a flight, you know, travel somewhere, if I, if I don't want to talk to the person next to me, I just have to get on the plane with my black suit and my white collar, and no one wants to talk to you. You're that dude, Right? Um, and if they do want to talk to you, then, hey, that's great. But I never did that, by the way. I don't, even, I don't have a white collar that would even fit this neck. But anyway, <laughs> but that is, religious people, religious leaders have kind of an aura about them. A lot of them do. They have kind of this, um, this external look. And sometimes when you're around them, I remember I was around, uh, we were, I was a young kid, we were at a soccer game, and our pastor, Randall Ross, was at the soccer game. And I'm like, my brothers and I were playing around, I'm like, guys, don't swear, Randall Ross, Pastor Ross is here. And Randall Ross, amazing pastor in Texas, um, he's now a pastor in Chicago, preaches to a church about, uh, you know, 12,000, just amazing man who has an incredible testimony. But when they're around, you kind of want to act a little bit better, right? Just a little bit, right? And this is what John the Baptist is getting at. This mountain man is basically saying, this is what you look like. But his message is simple, produce good fruit in keeping with repentance. And then the very next thing he says after this is he says, guess what? The Messiah is coming, and he's getting ready to chop down this tree. He's getting ready to chop down this tree because it's not producing good fruit. What's the good fruit? What's the tree he's talking about? He's talking about the nation of Israel. Hey, you've been claiming that Abraham's your father. It's kind of like, you know, I go to church every Sunday. Yep, right here. I'm good. You know, that's kind of our claim, you know. They, we don't actually produce any fruit necessarily. We just go, we show up on Sunday, right? Might throw a little bit in the offering bag when it goes by. That's, you know, and this is what John the Baptist is getting on. He's like, you don't, you don't, you're not, later on, J- Jesus says, you're not abiding in me. You're not part of me. You know, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You need to abide in him. You need to be a part of the very root that is rooted in God. That is our life force. It is an internal thing that's happening. It is a belief. It is a transformation that is happening within us that produces the fruit that is our behavior. You can't just act like it, in other words. And this is the fundamental question. Now, he's addressing religious leaders here. So producing fruit, by the way, fruit and and vegetation is all over the Bible. It's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New Testament. Paul uses it quite a bit, even in his own writings. But it's this idea that if you are founded, if you are planted with the very, in very good soil, right, that you will produce, your fruit will produce something people want. It's blueberry season right now, right? Who loves to pick blueberries? Man, it's amazing. You get a good blueberry, you know? Mmm. You get a bad one? Yeah. Right? Who's eating a bad blueberry? 
right? You don't want it. And this is what John the Baptist is saying. You don't produce good fruit. And Jesus is here, he's got the axe, and he's about to cut you down. Fascinating passage. How's everybody, everybody feeling pretty uplifted right now? Woohoo! <laughs> Later on, it's interesting because there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 6 that is probably one of the most debated passages among theologians in all of Christendom. It's a passage, we're going to read it here in a minute. I want you to wrestle with the words that come out of this passage. I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into it. I think will help you wrestle a little bit. But the message is stark. But here's an interesting thing in the book of Matthew before we move to that. Here's one interesting thing. In fact, John Selhammer says this in the NIV Compact Bible Commentary. He says this about the book of Matthew. Listen to this. He says, Matthew emphasizes on true, emphasis on true discipleship finds its expression in the negative example of these religious leaders. Have you ever noticed that? The book of Matthew uses what the Pharisees and Sadducees do as an example of what not to do as a disciple of Christ. I'm going to rock, rock the boat just a little bit. If you have any complaints, like I say, just let Dwayne and Dana know they don't tell me anything and I'm good. I have a feeling that there are some churches, quote-unquote churches, in our culture in America where the same thing could have been used by Jesus to say, don't do this like your religious leaders are doing. I'm just going to say that. I know that's rough, but I, I truly believe it. And my reason for believing that is because I look at the fruit of the church in America, and it doesn't seem as good as it should be. I'm not saying all churches. I'm, in fact, every church has its problems. Every church. I've served on staff at, I think, at six churches. Um, we, all, we all have our issues. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the congregational movement of being the, the good fruit to the world out there. There is a fundamental problem in our churches. And I'm not the only one picking up on this. Great theologians have picked up on this. We are not producing the fruit. And it's quite possible we need to quit following the example of our pastors. And I'm a pastor, I'm telling you. And my message is maybe if I'm not producing good fruit, don't follow me. Would you follow your friends off a cliff? Right? How many have ever had that one put? And we're following everybody off the cliff. Woo! Right? Do you get what I'm saying? So, I want you to think about this. I want you to react. So, a good young life friend. How many of you know amen? Amen. You know, like at some churches they go, amen. How many do that, right? Amen. Amen means truly, right? True, amen, amen. Truly, truly. It's a way you as a congregation affirm that you actually believe what I'm saying. All right, but since we live in, uh, you know, kind of a hipster culture now, we're not going to say amen because that's just too old-fashioned. We're going to say, as my young life friend said, I, everybody say, I, I, now, if you agree with me as I'm talking, shout out, I, <laughs> you don't agree. I'm not talking. I go to this church because they don't talk during service, right? I, all right, last service, they got it. I mean, first it was a bunch of kids because they're fearless, and then finally the adults joined in, right? I, okay, so here we go. Listen up. 
So I believe that the fruit of the church today is not as fruity as it should be. Right? I, and it's quite possible we've lost our fruitiness because we shouldn't be doing what the pastors are doing. I, I, know, I know you're like, whoa, he is stepping on the edge here. They're never asking him back. I'm okay with that. I don't get paid to be up here. But this is what John the Baptist is fundamentally doing. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 says this. I have to read it from the slide because it, my notes aren't incomplete. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have uh, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back into repentance. Just let that marinate for a second. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned." Not good. Before that, it says this, even though we speak like this, dear friends, oh, this is right after, sorry, even though we speak like, yeah, there we go. Go to the passage. Somehow we missed a slide here. Yep, there it is. Thank you. Before this passage, this is what it says. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you are no longer trying to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have, been tra have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the acts that lead to death and of the faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites, that's baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. You see, what it's saying here in Hebrews is it's basically He's talking to a group of people, and he says, guys, you guys aren't moving. You're not maturing. You're just staying on milk. All right? We uh, raised five boys. Um, my youngest is six. My oldest is 14, so we're still raising them, I guess. Actually, to be more clear, my wife has raised six boys. <laughs> we got a little girl in the, from uh, foster care not too long ago, and she's two, and we... we you know, bring her into the house, and I'm feeding her one day, and I'm like giving her like chicken and, you know, stuff, and my wife's like, what are you doing? She can't eat that. You know, she asked for juice. I'm like, all right, here's orange juice. She's like, she can't have orange juice. She's not ready for that. Like, I don't remember. I don't know. But the reality is, is that so many of us are still drinking milk, and we've been in the church a long time, and we're just, we're just still taking in milk. You know, yesterday, Fred Meyer, $3.99 a pound brisket. $3.99 a pound. Yeah, you heard me. I bought 50 bucks where it's like that big. 
It was awesome. I felt really manly carrying that out. Like, my wife had all, like, 30 grocery bags, and I had the brisket, like my baby. Could I give that to a child to eat? No. But this is essentially what God wants us to do. He's like, dude, I got something better. I got some good stuff. I need you to grow up. Now, for the warning passage, here's what it says. It's basically like, you know what? If, if you fall away, you might get burned up in the end. That's not good. Now, let me clarify this passage a little bit. This is the big debate. This is what's created the debate between Calvinism, Arminianism. There is, I mean, it's a big theological debate. Can a believer lose their salvation? Here's what Hebrews is talking about. If you do a word study of who uh, the author of Hebrews is addressing here, he is basically talking about apostates in this, in this passage. An apostate is someone who openly rejects their faith. Think of it like a militant atheist or an atheist who's just like, I mean, if you think like the purpose of atheism, it, it, it doesn't really have a purpose. They're trying to prove there's no God or they're saying there is no God. There's not a lot of evidence for it. In fact, there's more evidence for God, but we won't get into that today. But there is this like open hatred to Jesus and what he did. It's happening in America today. They call it the post-Christian world. There is an open hate, and that's kind of who he's addressing. There's these people that were believers who developed some type of apostasy where they, have, they publicly, there's actually a bunch of words about the, pu- the publicness of their, their anti-testimony to Jesus Christ. That's who I believe Hebrews is a- a- addressing. Several New Testament scholars have pointed this out. It's not, it's not that you're walking along and you kind of have this moment of doubt. It's not like you're going to lose your faith. That's not what Hebrews is saying. What Hebrews is trying to say, it's not trying to give you a negative example. It's saying, grow up. Grow up. Be the good fruit so that what you produce in this land will not get burned up. So it's not useless. So it is good. Does that make sense? That's what it is. This is what Hebrews is about. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is about when you read it from beginning to end. It's like, oh my word, what just happened? What are you going to do about it? All the way through, this idea of vegetation and the whole idea of being rooted, being rooted in the very, very nature of God through the Holy Spirit. That's what's open to all of us. You know, I've made a commitment. I'm not going to pray just for the sake of praying. That's an external behavior. I pray because I get up and, and, and I want to be with God. And it's weird. I'm not, I'm not this guy. I'm not disciplined. Look at me. I'm just not disciplined. Tom, Tom knows. He's been trying to change me for years, for at least a year and a half or something. But man, at 4.30, I don't even need an alarm. And I want to get up and I want to spend time with God. You know what's interesting? A very close relative of mine lives close to my house where we live now. And I walk by his house every day and pray. And yesterday we had breakfast with him. And I told him I walked by his house. And he's like, oh, how come I never see you? I'm like, well, I never see you. Da-da-da. This morning I was praying and I walked by his house and his chair was empty and I walked by. And the Lord says, turn around and go back. And I went back, and there, there's, there's this relative getting his newspaper. Daily occurrence of seeing God work. I, 
We have the very water of life in the root flowing through us to produce the best blueberries ever. And people want it. People need it. It's all over. And you, all of us in here, have an opportunity in the end to see God move, and He moves through us. I don't pray because I have to. I pray because I want to. Does that make sense? I read God's Word because I want to, not because I have to. Believe me, I went to Bible college. They made us read the whole thing. I hated it. One time, our instructions were to read the entire book of Genesis in one sitting. Let me say, that's actually impossible. (laughs) We are called by Him who loves us to abide in Him. You know, we have a pathway here at Eastridge. Meet, know, and follow. That's our pathway. We want people to meet Jesus. We want people to know about Jesus, and we want people to follow Jesus with the, the, the counseling effect of the Holy Spirit in their life. A lot of you have met Jesus. A lot of you know a lot about Jesus because you've sat here on Sundays for years or other churches for years and years. But how many of you are following Him? You know, that's, that's the funny thing about that pathway. There's not really much we can do as a leadership team to make you follow It's something you have to choose to do. Follow and abide are the same thing. How are you going to follow Jesus? It was interesting, two weeks ago, I'm sorry, yeah, two weeks ago we had a leadership, our leadership team met here, and we were talking about we're having a huge problem getting volunteers, uh, especially for children's ministry. And I, and uh, you know, as they kind of shared the need, I was like, oh my word, and now, as soon as they mentioned children's ministry, my immediate internal thought was, oh, this doesn't pertain to me. Yeah, I don't watch children. And then the Holy Spirit kicked in. Uh, hello. This is the next generation of people who I want to use to reach the world in my name. Why are we having a hard time getting children, people to do children's ministry? You know, I mean... That is like, out of all the things God could ask you to do, that's like the least, like, like uh, it has the least amount of obstacles. They're like kids. The most they're going to test is your patience. How are we having our time? Now, I do think, I believe this, and I, and I want you to hear this, Eastridge, and we've been talking about this a lot over the last uh, couple years, we have not been the best at caring for you guys. Okay, we have got to be a, we have to be a better church of caring for you. We have to invest in you. We have to develop and train you. We have to love you. You have to see us doing that so that you can do it. So part of it is our problem. Part of it is as a leadership team, Dwayne has said this, multiple of our leaders say, we have got to be better at caring for the people of Eastridge. And I'm saying this, I, I, I truly mean this. Those of you who know me know I mean this. We love you. I love you. I, I hope I get an opportunity to meet all of you. You have to be spaced out a little bit. But I, hope, I love you guys. I really do. And I want to see you activated for the gospel. I hope you hear me. I, and believe me, that's truly where my heart is. God has developed and changed my heart to be that. So I want you to hear that.
But at the same time, we have a problem where we're not caring enough for the people of Eastridge. We need the people of Eastridge, the community, that's all of us, to step up and be a part of the ministry that's going on of the gospel movement at Happy Valley through Eastridge. We've got to have that. We need, it's a, both of us need to do it. We need, the leaders need to do something. The community of Eastridge needs to do something. We've got to have it. Because our kids are walking into a world that is scary beyond belief. I ate. And what's going to get them through that is being rooted in the very essence of life itself. I ate. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask for some volunteers. I'm going to talk about a little bit about where the culture's going, just to build up your excitement. And I'm going to use some kids to do this. So we're going to gather. We need four kids, and we've got two helpers here. It happen to be my own kids, who are going to identify four kids and kids, you know, let's say 19 and under. I know all of you are kids at heart, but uh, it'd be weird for you to do some of this stuff. Okay, so four kids. Raise your hand if you want to come up here, if you're a kid. Wow, do we not have any kids in here? I can't see. There's one. I think that's my kid. <laughs> wow. No, you put your hand down. Put your hand down. Oh, come on. We don't have any kids in here? All right, Quincy Ho's here somewhere. He can be a kid. He's really good at that. Where are you at, Quincy? I saw you walking in late, so ha uh, Come on, Quincy. Come on up. Where's he at? I know he's here. There he is. Oh, we got one here. Come on up. Did you want to come up? They're pointing at you. She's shaking her head like, no. Come on up. It's super. You won't be embarrassed. I promise. Come on. Come on. Yeah, right here. Woohoo! All right. Cam, why don't you come up to you? Oh, wait, there was one right there. I could have picked on him, too. He's just like right in the middle. He's shaking his head like, no way. <laughs> wow. No one wants to be on stage. All right, come on up here. We're going to do two illustrations I want to talk about. I want to talk about two interesting things that are happening in culture now. And uh, they're pretty simple. I think most of us, when I start talking about it, you'll be like, yep, I think that's actually happening in our culture. And then I want to tie it into reality, okay? So here's what's happening. Many of you know, um, I, I've, done a couple, I've done an illustration. I do this a lot. I teach worldview. Uh, and I use a, a simple illustration of three colored balls to represent the three kind of spheres of reality. I'm going to describe that to you. Uh, the color balls that I normally use that glow, that are light, a lot of people asked in the last service where those were. I didn't charge them last night because I'm a kid. And uh, so they're not ready. So we'll have to use the tennis balls, which I, uh, we're okay. So we're going to start off. You come up front. What's your name? I'm Gregory. Gregory? Good. Good name. Gregory, lift up your ball really high. This is the green sphere. This represents physical reality. Okay? This is a reality we all know about, right? Everything you can see, touch, taste, hear, smell, all that. That's physical, right? Does everybody get that? Physical? The green sphere is physical reality. All right? Okay, good. I'm glad you believe in physical reality. Whew. Okay. The next sphere, come on up, lift up the ball. This is Cade, my youngest. Yeah. All right. Red represents the emotional mental sphere. Okay. How many of you have had a thought today? All right. Raise your hand. Those of you not raising your hand, please be checked out by a psychiatrist soon. Okay. Emotional and mental sphere, red sphere. Step here, Gregory. Green ball whoop, up in the air. Yeah. If you need to switch hands, that's fine. Physical, emotional. We all agree those exist, right? Right? All right, next. What's your name? Annabelle. Annabelle. Annabelle, 
this is the blue sphere. This is the spiritual reality. If you were here back in May, Dwayne and I did a series on uh, showing you that the spiritual realm exists. We believe fundamentally it does. Uh, statistically, it does all kinds of ways. We can prove it. We're not going to talk about that today. But we believe that God exists in, a, an, in the spiritual realm. God the Father, the angels are in this other realm or dimension, however you want to say it. But we believe this is a real reality, an eternal reality. We believe the physical realities uh, has a, a short period of time. The emotional, mental reality, I believe, is actually uh, a link between the two. Okay, here's what's happening in culture. Really simple. We have a whole movement of people that deny, and if not implicitly or explicitly, they implicitly deny it just by their actions, that the spiritual realm and all of the consequences that going with even believing in it does not exist. Does everyone agree with that, right? Right? We are beginning to live in a culture that doesn't actually live in harmony or in the belief that the spiritual realm is relevant or real. That's really happening. So you can step back. See, sure, I told you it was really easy. Then we have the emotional mental realm. Ironically, there's a whole movement in the science world and others that's trying to deny that this is a different reality. They're actually trying to prove that this reality is tied to the physical reality. Okay, this is happening now. It's happening in uh, brain studies. It's happening in uh, philosophical discussions. It's happening in uh, quantum theory, all these other uh, crazy fields, even in artificial intelligence. It's implicit. The implicit assumption in artificial intelligence is that the physical reality and the, the uh, emotional mental reality is the same thing, that we're just a bunch of synapses firing at random that produce what we are. Okay, that's happening. How many? I ate. Everybody agree? So this is going away, and we're left with the green reality. Not me. Uh, my last name's Green. Huh? No, no one got it. Okay. <laughs> the emotional, mental reality already gone in this congregation. Okay. This is all that's left. We call this materialism. Materialism. Everybody get that? Yeah. All right. You three may go sit down. Oh, Quincy, I'm going to use you for something good. This is awesome. Okay, you guys can go put those down and sit down. I'll just pick on Quincy. Come on up, brother. <laughs> they were. So, the number one thing that uh, I see diminishing is this collapse of what I believe is all a reality into a physical-only reality, okay, materialism. Interestingly enough, there's another thought form that's coming, and it's coming to a university near you. It's actually already penetrating culture and society, and that is uh, a philosophy that was first developed by Hegel, uh, a philosopher, a German philosopher, and he developed this thought. Prior to Hegel, we were mainly didactic thinkers, okay? So let me show you what I mean by didactic. Quincy, are you married? Yes. What's your wife's name? Sarin. All right. Now, Quincy is married to Sarin, okay? That's the thesis, if Quincy then tells me that he's married to Christine, would he be lying to me? Unless Seren's middle name is Christine, is it? That'd be weird. Could be her nickname. Yeah, there could be all kinds of ways you spin this lie. Right, okay. Right? So he's married 
to Seren. So if someone comes up later and you hear him say, no, I'm married to Christine, then you'd be like, huh? How many of you would be like, maybe he's lying, maybe he forgot, you know, who he's actually married to, right? Give him the benefit of the doubt, right? He does work night shift, so he's tired. But we think didactically. That's didactic thinking. There's a thesis, and there's something that's against the thesis, the antithesis. There's truth, and there's a lie, right? If, if I say that Quincy is Asian, let's give me, help me out, be, be politically correct. What should I call you? Asian. Asian, okay. <laughs> Just went through my diversity training. Okay, <laughs> I didn't call him Oriental, that's right. So it, he's Asian. But then later I say, no, he grew up in the South in Texas. That's possible. But if I say his heritage, he, you know, his ancestors are from Texas, you're like, no, right? Does everybody get it? We think didactically, okay? That's all you had to do, dude. You can go sit down. Whew. Simple. I was going to ask him. <laughs> Didactic thinking says there's a thesis and an antithesis, okay? Really simple. We all think that way every day. If you run the red light in your car and you get a ticket, you can make up all the excuses in the world, but in the end, you're still going to get a ticket. There's a consequence when you break the rules, right? All right. Hegel said, okay, we have thesis, antithesis, and then he says, you know, maybe they both could be true. And he developed another line of thinking called synthesis. And synthesis is this idea that maybe the thesis and the antithesis are both partially true, depending on your perspective. And so, you have thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Synthesis essentially becomes a new thesis, right? Make sense? We have now a new truth, thesis. There's an antithesis to that. Oh, and maybe there's a new synthesis. Then you have a new thesis, a new antithesis, synthesis, a new thesis. Do you guys see where it's going? This is progressivism. This is progressive political theory. This is where it came from. This system is called dialectical. Big word, dialectical. We think didactically. Some people want to think dialectical. Okay? Everybody, I'm using big words, but they're really simple. Everybody get it? Dialectical says, eh, it depends on your perspective. I'm married to Christine today, not Seren. Do you get it? This is postmodernism. This is what led to Marxism. Do you know what they call Marxism and communism as a political system or as a philosophical system? Dialectical materialism. Do you think our culture is headed in that direction just slightly? Right? There are no absolutes. Mankind is going to get better. Right now, we think this is the truth. We just need to shift about 20 years. We'll have a new truth. Then we shift another 20 years. We'll have a new truth. And by the way, we're going to condemn those back there that believed in the other truth, and you see what's going on. This is progressivism. Progressivism, politically, scientifically, in every way, progressivism doesn't believe in absolutes. There is no absolute truth. Go live your life as if you're not rooted in anything. You know, it's interesting. 
Robbie Zacharias was in Ohio, at Ohio State, and the driver decided to take him to Wexner uh, Performing Arts Center, and he says, this is an interesting building. It's the first postmodern building. Let me show you a couple pictures of the first postmodern building. The first postmodern building, it's got stairs that go nowhere. <laughs> uh, it's got columns and pillars that actually don't hold anything up. This is a postmodern building. Here's the interesting question Robbie thought of right away when he was taken here. He goes, I hope they didn't think that way with its foundation. Yet we have a whole culture right now that has no foundation to stand on. Do you think they need good fruit? I know there's some big words in here. It's not hard. I actually, in the last service, was able to tell this to the kids, and the kids got it. I just didn't want to do that to Quincy. I didn't want to make him think that hard. <laughs> Quincy's a good guy. He's actually super smart. But this is what's happening in our culture. So I ask again, do you think it's really beneath you to volunteer to help the children of the next generation survive? No. Do you get what I'm asking? Do you get what the call is? Do you get what I'm saying? Are you ready to be done drinking milk? Are you ready to eat the big brisket? If you're a vegetarian, it's like, you know, I'm sorry. I don't have an analogy for vegetarians. Like an oversized carrot. I... <laughs> Veggie brisket. Ah, that's, pro that's probably a real thing, isn't it? Okay. If it is a real thing, please do not ruin my day. Okay. <laughs> this is the Wexner Center for the Performing Arts, and I guarantee you they're on a proper foundation for that building. It is impossible to live out your worldview if you think dialectically. It's impossible to live out your worldview if you're materialistic. We all like new things. We do. But you're happy with it for about two weeks or until it breaks down. Right? I ate. This is what the culture is following, and it's following it at light speed. And the church must raise up itself and become the light of the world. It's that simple. It's interesting, at the beginning of Matthew, John the Baptist is addressing the Pharisees, and he's addressing the religious leaders, and he's saying, the axe is about to chop you down, you sons of Abraham. The axe is here. Even the, and the rocks are going to, basically says the rocks are going to take over. It's interesting, at the very end of Matthew, do I have that slide? I don't know, Travis, did I send you Matthew? We didn't have it in the last service. Oh, we did. In Matthew 16, listen to what he does. He's talking to Peter, and Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So Peter has grown up. Not completely. He's not totally perfect, you're, you know, but he's getting there, okay? And, he, and by the way, I think you can make a serious uh, case study of Peter and say he's probably one of the most rash, irresponsible of all the disciples. And that's who Jesus chooses to build his church on. I Okay. But my Father in heaven, and I tell you that you are Peter, Petra, you're the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Do you see rock? Do you see what, John the what Matthew's doing at the beginning with John? He's like, I'm cutting down the tree, and the rock's going to raise up, and the rock's going to be the foundation of my church. That's what Matthew chapter 3 is doing. John's setting that up. Okay? 
on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. NIV was being politically correct there. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Ben talked about that last week. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. He's setting it up. The shift took place. We, as the church, become the answer to the world. Does that not get you excited? Up until there, Israel was the root That was the seed where the Messiah was going to come. The Messiah comes and he says, guys, you weren't doing what I needed you to do. I'm cutting you down and now I'm building a rock. A rock doesn't, you know, those of you know, rocks like long, last longer than a vegetable, right? And he says, this is my rock and I'm going to pick this guy, not a religious dude, a fisherman, okay? I mean, when you start thinking what God did or Jesus did in his ministry here and who he picked and so it's mind blowing, mind-blowing. It's like the worst leadership principles ever taught. Go and pick like the worst of them and develop them and care for them. And that's what he's asking the church to do. I think I've shared a little bit of my testimony just briefly, but um, I, was, I have great parents um, and I was raised and I couldn't read really well. They didn't know why. Um, they didn't know that I had a blindness. But I was actually, I, I took tests and they actually, I was actually diagnosed like mildly retarded, okay? I'm not kidding you. Um, I didn't read very well and all that. Later on, they figured out I had some eye issues and I was way behind. I remember getting a report card in fifth grade where I had like four C's and not a ton of D's and C's. And I was so excited. I remember talking to my mom, like, I got like a bunch of C's. I was so excited. And so all my life growing up, I'm just like, yeah, I'm not really a thinker. I'm not that guy. I'm not smart enough. And it's weird. I got a brother who's in the R doc, another one is executive. My dad's a scientist. My mom's a doctor. And then there's me. And then one day in, in the 90s, I'm introduced to apologetics, and I don't know, for some reason I got it. <laughs> and then I started teaching people. And then as a college student, a major church asked me to be the college pastor. And then God says, I have selected you, the least of these, to do some great things. And I go, me? No. And now, 25 years later, God is allowing me to travel the country and lead a movement of the largest first responder ministry in the world. And I'm just so excited. And I get to work with the most incredible people. And God says, don't doubt what I can do with your life. I eat. You were here in the first service, so she got a lot of practice. I, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Are you ready to abide in him? Are you ready to follow him wherever he will lead? And it will be scary. Believe me, I've done it. There's some scary moments out there. My wife and I and our family, uh, and we've made some tremendous sacrifices for the gospel. Not nearly as many as others, but still some were, a lot of people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is where Jesus called me to be. I got two questions I want to ask you as we depart, and I just want you to think about it. I'm preaching next week, so if you so choose, show up. Um, But I got two questions I want to ask you. I want you to think about this. 
And if you forget, next week when I get up on stage, you'll be like, oh, he had two questions for me, and you can just think about them during next week's sermon. Don't even have to listen. I don't even have to prepare. Okay? Here are the two questions. These questions were asked of me and a colleague, but here you go. Do you have the peace of Christ in you? You know, I mean, we have, all of us have burdens and worries and all that, and <laughs> I have them too. But it's funny, when I get up and pray in the morning or in the, in the evening or whatever, we have our tea time or whatever, you know, it's awesome because God's like, hey, give me your burdens real quick. Just give those up, Chris. Quit worrying about it. I'm going to take care of you. If I, I, I wish I could share some things that even happened this week. could blow your mind how God's taking care of us. Blow your mind. I mean, mind-blowing. Right? Do you have the peace of Christ? Do you believe that Christ has got it taken care of? Do you have the peace of Christ in your heart if you don't ask for help? Second question. Are you praying, giving, and serving others so that they may have the peace of Christ? If you got the peace of Christ and you're not sharing it, what's wrong? So many people right here in Portland, in Happy Valley, at New Seasons, at the park, they are needing the peace of Christ like nobody's business. I did a ride-along last week to both of them deputies. We had breakfast, and both of them, neither one of them followed Christ, and then both of them said, can we start meeting and follow? I didn't even bring it up. They're like, can we just start meeting? I need to know more about Christ. All you got to do is be available. (laughs) Are you praying, giving, and serving others so that the others may have the peace of Christ? Are you producing the fruit? Let's pray. The band was going to come out in an explosion of fire. (laughs) But I think we just had a fail. (laughs) Give it up for the, everybody, give it up for the band. Woo! You know, I asked them today uh, if I could play in the band, and they kept ignoring me. So I think the Lord was getting you back. (laughs) I don't believe that at all theologically, but it's fun to think about in your mind. Okay. Father God, thank you for humor, for love, for family, for relationships, for being, for living and breathing. Use us as a community to reach those in our communities. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, I ate.